Next up on This Week in Law, we've got the Chicago Mafia, Jackie Chang, Chris Forsman, and Evan Brown, all from that great city, joining us to talk about the Osama bin Laden assassination, the legal communications around that. Also, we're going to talk about LimeWire, iPhones, PSN, privacy, security, all that good stuff next on This Week in Law. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 110, recorded May 6, 2011. Smarmy Righteous Indignation. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Trim Tonic. Trim Tonic is a natural appetite suppressant tonic that takes the edge off being hungry and tastes great. Go to braintonic.com and enter coupon code TWIT for a 20% discount. Hello, I'm Denise Howell, and you've tuned in for This Week in Law, episode 110. We've got a great panel of Chicagoans with us today, uh, two of whom are from Ars Technica. We've got Jackie Chang, who is senior Apple editor there. Hello, Jackie. Welcome to the show. Hello. Great to have you. And uh, also, we've got Chris Forsman, who's a contributing writer for Ars Technica. Hello, Chris. Hello. Hello, great to have you on the show. We've uh, we've been talking about stories that both of you have done um, often on the show, but in recent shows. So um, it's great that we can have you on to go in more detail on them and uh, about other things that are on our minds this week. Uh, also joining us from Chicago is Evan Brown from Hinshaw and Culbertson. Hi, Evan. Hey, how's it going? Happy Friday to you. It's great to be here. Happy Friday to you. Uh, Evan, of course, is also at internetcases.com, his wonderful blog. And Evan, I've been uh, really enjoying, too, your Tumblr log or Tumblr log. I think I have those two things confused. Um, Tumblr and a Tumblr log, are they the it's same? A, I don't know. It's a, it's a Tumblr log on Tumblr, so yes. Well, thank you. I'm glad you've, uh, I'm, I'm glad you've noticed. You know, I just, uh, as I say there, I just collect, you know, as in the nature of a Tumblr log, you know, just collect miscellaneous things there. So uh, I'm quite flattered that you would uh, check it out. Thank you. Yes, evanbrown.internetcases.com is that one. And I also love the name of Chris's Tumblr blog. Uh, what is it? Super Paramagnetic Effect? Yeah, uh-huh. It's, <laughs> uh, it's the name I've used for my blog for almost 10 years now. So That's fantastic. So you've been blogging for a really long time and uh, you're a freelancer? Yes. Mm -hmm. Super. All right, well, um, let's get into some uh, national and homeland security stuff since it's been sort of a big week for that kind of thing. Um, I wanted to talk about since, uh, let's see, it was Joan over on our Facebook page who alerted me to this. We uh, have a Facebook page that we use in connection with the show at facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw where we post up questions before the show and where listeners and viewers point us towards stuff. And Joan Skinner asked if we'd be commenting on this today. Uh, she thinks everyone should switch the primary browser back to Firefox to show support for their standing up for everyone's rights. 
And uh, the story has to do with the fact that um, the Immigrations and Customs Enforce Enforcement Office, uh, the acronym for that is ICE, and we've talked about this quite a bit on the show, um, has seized various domains from copyright infringing sort of facilitating sites. And lo and behold, uh, not too long after that happened, I think it was the middle of last month, um, within about three days of that going down, um, somebody decided that they were going to do a Firefox extension that would take care of that issue. And what it does is redirect the seized domains to where the sites now reside. So you're not really slowed down if you're trying to go to those domains, even though they have been seized. Well, the um, ICE people are not real happy about that. And they have demanded that Mozilla take the extension down from its listing of Firefox extensions, claiming that it circumvents the Department of Homeland Security's seizure orders. And Mike Masnick over at TechNerd has a great write-up on this, including all of the various questions that the Mozilla folks fired back to ICE uh, when they received this request, rather than just complying automatically, they have asked about the extension and whether it has been determined unlawful or illegal by any uh, court or in any way. And they want rulings and authorities to support that. Uh, they want to know if any of the domains seized uh, related to this that are being redirected. Um, have been determined to be unlawful, illegal, or liable for infringement. So there's a whole list of 11 questions that the Mozilla folks fired back. And apparently now the ball is in ISIS court to decide if they're going to, you know, respond to these uh, and push forward or just say, we don't need to respond to this. We are the government and you must obey us. Um, so we'll see what happens here. But uh, I think it's interesting. It goes along with uh, one of the themes that we have um, that uh, it says a lot about an organization, um, how they respond to a broad sweeping government request. So um, this is a nice thing to know about Mozilla. Jackie, uh, did you check this out? And do you have any thoughts? Um, I, I did check it out. Um, someone, I think Nate Anderson wrote about it for ours. And um, I don't know, I guess I don't, I don't have a lot of thoughts that haven't already been voiced. Um, I, I do agree that, you know, I, I can't see how, how or why that Mozilla would even get rid of this add-on unless there was some sort of court order, at least, to uh, mm -hmm. you know, to ask them to take it down. Um, so in that sense, you know, I'm I'm glad that they haven't yet, uh, and I hope that I hope that ICE does answer some of the questions, but I. I mean, I'm a little bit pessimistic in this sense, so I don't necessarily expect them to. Uh, but I don't know, I guess it, it would be nice to see what the answers are if they were to you know, get around to doing that. Right. Evan, what do you think will happen here? I doubt that the Department of Homeland Security will grace this with much of a, a formal response. So what there is for us to be to, to take from this is this essential idea of the lack of efficacy in the Department of Homeland Security's uh, actions in the first place by you know going in and seizing these domain names. It it brings to mind 
the uh, Lessigan notion, you know, as a la Larry Lessig of, you know, code is law and how the architecture of the, of the system can kind of shape and uh, let norms develop on, um, you know, the, the platform, so to speak. Uh, the, the fact that these domain names were seized uh, is, you know, intrusive for at least a little while, but clearly what we see here is a technological workaround uh, for this that is going to be likewise annoying to uh, law enforcement like this, but it's a, it's a gap that is that is quickly filled uh, by all of these things. So by by doing this, so so what I enjoy seeing from this is the the technological solution and what arises from these eleven questions that Mozilla has fired back with uh, to the to the Department of Homeland Security here really gives life or clearly articulates some of the absurdity and the lack of any real meaning uh, as to, you know, the Department of Homeland Security's actions that it took in the first place. That's what I enjoy the most uh, seeing from, from this interchange of, of information. Right, and it's worth noting too that uh, Mike Masnick in an earlier post when he um, first noted that the extension, which is called Mafia Fire with an extra A at the end of Mafia, um, when it first came online, uh, Mike seems to have been very tickled and, and I can see why, by the fact that uh, the person who came up with this uh, got the idea on a Sunday, had no idea how to make a Firefox plugin, but by Thursday had a working version and you know points out that this is what um, ICE and other people who would seize domains are up against as far as the <laughs> speed and, as you say, have an efficacy of workarounds um, to their their actions. Uh, Chris, any thoughts on this? I, 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 personally, I just see that where Mozilla is looking, saying, you know, where's the legal authority for you to tell us to do this? What's the legal authority that you have that you know, you tell us to do something and we just have to do it. And I think that's an important question. Mm -hmm. And and um, so far, they haven't answered. I think I agree with Jackie that, it, you know, if it came to a court order, Mozilla would obey it. But, um, you know, I don't see any reason why, why ICE just can say, do this, you know, because well, it annoys I, us. I don't, I don't necessarily think they'll obey it. Um, I mean, I do think... There, there is a question of there. The the plugin itself doesn't break any laws. Uh, you know, it's it's a matter of taking information that already exists on the internet. You know, I'm sure someone is compiling a list of where these sites are going once they get shut down. So, mm -hmm. is it illegal to tell people where the sites are going? No, or is it? I mean, that's I think that's the real question. So, what's I mean, even if even if they did get a court order, what would happen then? I don't know. That's true. It's a good point. Right. And and it gets to the point too that um you know what they're what they're complaining about here is facilitating um illegalities down the line. Uh and that is something that has been long a theme in copyright litigation, particularly um since the Grokster decision several years back. And that has reared its head again this week as well. And there's another instance of um, an entity here, it's CNET, that someone would like to hold responsible for infringements uh, that it's not engaging in simply because it acted as an intermediary. And that's something that's, that's entirely possible to assert under the Grokster case. So 
what's happened here is um, there are a couple of stories related to LimeWire. There's this one uh, where somebody named, I think it's Alki David. Um, he is a wealthy film producer and entrepreneur. And right now um, we're looking at your colleague, Nate Anderson's piece on Ars Technica. And you can see all the links to um, things we're gonna discuss today on the show, uh, delicious.com slash thisweekinlaw slash 110. It's where we've aggregated all of these. Uh, Nate's piece on this is quite good and uh, describes how Mr. David, who's a film producer and entrepreneur beside behind sites like Film On, um, is going after LimeWire, uh, claiming that CNET, quote unquote, provided the guns. In other words, CNET, which has, you know, it's a huge archive of things that are available for download at download.com. Um, one of the things that you could download there, uh, along with other pieces of software, were uh, was LimeWire. And now they, uh, they say that CNET should be responsible um, for all the infringements that took place by all of the, you know, probably millions of instances of downloads of that particular software from their site. Um, so Evan, are you surprised to see this kind of a case crop up under the Grokster decision? I think this is a really interesting and entertaining uh, situation. I had never heard of Alki David and, you know, perhaps I should have because he looks like he has, you know, had some success given that he drives red Ferraris down the streets of Beverly Hills and all of that stuff. So, um, you know, I watched his, you know, little rant, you know, that he put on, on YouTube going after uh, C, uh, CNET. You know, he makes it very clear numerous times that CNET is a uh, subsidiary, you know, a division or whatever of CBS. You know, CBS is really the evil one here. And so um, when, I, when I think of the theatrics behind Alki David's claims here that CNET is somehow responsible for massive scale infringement because it made available for download, you know, LimeWire and various other P2P uh, applications and stuff, I'm a little bit reminded of the way Donald Trump is, you know, the Salki David guy is great. I love him. He's very entertaining to watch. You know, if you can get past kind of the, oh, I don't know, smarmy kind of righteous indignation that pervades his, um, um, his, his uh, way of, of talking and way of, of communicating here. He's, he's clearly driven by ego. Uh, and so, I, you know, rather than be put off by that, I'm choosing to be entertained by it and, and recognize his interest, his motives in uh, having this kind of campaign. There's a lot of publicity that he's trying to put up in connection with, you know, the litigation that he is instigating here against uh, CNET, uh, you know, for what uh, Professor Goldman, Eric Goldman uh, from UC Santa Clara, characterizes as an idea of tertiary copyright infringement. We've got a couple different layers of, of responsibility that would have to be shown here. You know, you've got the direct infringement of copyrighted works by the users of the P2P software. Then you've got the responsibility or purported responsibility of the, the software uh, developer. And then, you know, here we're going a third layer up into the, the, the cake, if you will. We've got, uh, you know, the potential liability for CNET. So, um, you know, it, it, this is just one of those things where when you see it, you think, oh, this is this is crazy. You know, on first blush, uh, you know, it just it just seems um, hard to believe, especially when, you know, if you take the, the a certain attitude toward the, the publicity that's going to it. Um, factually, you know, let's just wait and see what comes up here. How much did CNET uh, do to promote 
the software as an object of infringement or as a device to with having have at its object the the infringement of copyrighted materials we've got the grokster analysis from 2005 maybe these facts will fit into that right now it's just too soon to to tell and so what i'm choosing to do is just be uh, entertained by the the theatrics that are that are going along with it at this point I'm wondering if perhaps CNET and its owner, CBS, might be able, might have an opportunity to use the DMCA defensively here uh, by saying, you know, if you think that we had an infringing item on our website, then you should have pursued that avenue um, to ask us to take it down. Yeah. And uh, I don't know that that, that was ever done. Um, and again, you know, it's it's not that the item itself was infringing, it's that it was capable of infringement if used wrongly by users. So it's, as you say, I've been a few steps removed. Uh, Chris, what do you think of this one? I'm almost wondering too if, I mean, I could, I could potentially see CNET making like a safe harbor argument that they, you know, provided content um, it wasn't their content, but they provided it. Users could access it. You know, what the users decide to do with it isn't their responsibility. Mm -hmm. Right. And as Evan says, I think, you know, under Grokster, it's going to be a question of, you know, if, if yeah. there are big banners next to the uh, file for download on download.com that get all the music you want, anything you like, free, use LimeWire, mm -hmm. you know, then, <laughs> then they're right. going to have issues. But I don't think that that, that was the case. Um, Jackie, uh, what do you think of this one? Um, I mean, I think I, I'm on board with Evan's, you know, take on this. It is, I think it's so, it's almost so bizarre in a way, the the avenue, like the way that this whole thing is, is being brought up is that you kind of just have to sit back and just marvel at how, how <laughs> weird it is, you know? Uh, I, I don't, I really don't know what to think. Uh, you know, obviously they, they didn't pursue I don't know. They didn't pursue any sort of, you know, they didn't send takedowns and that kind of thing. It was just straight straight up to this lawsuit and and yeah, CNET provided the guns. I mean, that's that's crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> so right. so yeah, I mean, I think I think I think it is interesting uh, you know, to to see how it will play out just because of the way that it's being carried out. Um yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It, it it really just cannot be separated from Alki David's you know motives and his business interests and all of this. And I alluded to this, you know, when I you know a few moments ago when I was talking about this. But you know, he's got Film On, which is a service providing high def content over mobile devices and over a certain network here. So he has a a very clear interest in making something out of this. And you know, to the extent that he's motivated by that and not by the pure um you know legal concerns that are addressed in copyright infringement litigation that it becomes a little bit unfortunate then so we cannot have you know i i suggest we cannot have a comprehensive view as to the weirdness of all of this or fully understand the weirdness without understanding the extrajudicial influences uh, going on with all this it's much more than just the question of of copyright infringement liability it's a larger business and enterprise type of type of thing that's that's my belief on this 
Right. It reminds me of, we talked about this maybe a couple of months ago, Evan. Um, there was a demand letter, I think it was sent to um, PC Magazine, that uh, had to do with a piece that they published on um, LimeWire alternatives, you know, with LimeWire mm -hmm. going down in flames in its litigation. Um, you know, things things that would do what LimeWire did and were still freely available. And, and uh, I don't think a lawsuit ever ensued over it, but it's the same kind of argument that by listing out the alternatives and giving sort of a how-to, you know, if you need P2P software for legitimate purposes, and they, they did um, do uh, their due diligence in saying, you know, we, we do not encourage you to do illegal things with this software. Um, there are legal things that this is very well suited to um, well, th that go ahead. Well, you know, you're, this is the first time I'm, I'm thinking of this, mm -hmm. I guess, unless there's something in the Grokster opinion or in some of the opinions leading up to that at the district court level and in the Ninth Circuit, that it's almost becomes a First Amendment question here. Mm -hmm. If the facts are taking, have the facts here have taken us a little bit further afield, more than more into a domain of just talking about the software rather than being a purveyor of the software. We've got to remember that in Grokster, the defendants were the ones who developed the software and made it available, and the court held that it was an you know an unlawful inducement of infringement because they marketed it with the object of of having infringement occur. Here, it's just a platform, and then I know that one of the big gripes that Alki David and his ilk have here uh, is with some of the editorial commentary from the CNET editors. You know, there, you know, that that accompanies along the left-hand side uh, the editor's review of the of the software. And so, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know if there really was a First Amendment concern uh, in the you know the Grokster litigation, but here it seems like we're presented with a better context to have that First Amendment kind of question. You know, doesn't someone have the right to talk about software and to say where it's available and what it does, even if uh, you are saying that yes, this can be done uh, for infringement. I see you know a couple of things bumping up against each other, uh, in, in if, if if framed that way. Right. right. If you nothing also, else, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say you you have to uh, speaking of First Amendment issues. I mean, it's not just First Amendment issues uh, in general, but also obviously you know it's a website, uh, you know publication. There's certain protections that that the press have to talk about. You know, software like that, and so, especially if they're not giving specific instructions on how to, say, download a copyrighted movie, uh, you know, you it is kind of a, it is kind of a gray area, uh, and at least at ours, we we treat it. You know, if, if we're talking about the software, then it's fair game as long as we're not instructing people on how to, you know, conduct illegal activities, and so mm -hmm. you know, I. I have to wonder how that will be treated if it were to go to court. Right. I was going to say, if nothing else, it's a it's an excellent case study in you know what was bound to happen after the Grokster decision. The Grokster decision, talk about providing the guns, provided the guns to to many a would be plaintiff to be able to bring this kind of suit. And you know, we back in two thousand five, I remember writing articles all over the place about how, you know, the sky's falling, we need to protect ourselves because this is a really scary decision that's on the books. And, you know, I, things have calmed down somewhat, but this is now an excellent example of how the, those 
things come home to roost. Uh, we had a good comment in IRC from Duck Hunter who said, if General Motors didn't make the car, there would not have been an auto accident. If that's the mindset, we'd all be waiting for lightning to create fire. And, and that's what we were worried about when Grokster came out is that it has the tendency to quell innovation. Um, so, and that now, Evan, I think that's an excellent point. Also potentially free speech and, uh, that didn't come up at all. I think in any of the briefing, um, at any level of the Grokster case, because LimeWire, or the Grokster program itself was not, you know, something that right. was engaged in editorial. Right. Um, Zephyr but, makes a good point in IRC as well mm -hmm. about how, uh, well, I mean, he's just saying that LimeWire is always he or she, whomever Zephyr is, is saying LimeWire is always catching up because it was a generation before BitTorrent and all that stuff. And so that's a good point because it underscores maybe the relevancy of why uh, they're fighting over this now. Uh, clearly, LimeWire is, you know, the assets of that pretty much have, you know, if somebody else has gotten dibs on that, you know, that's another issue that we may be discussing here today, that, you know, going into the damages phase of that huge copyright uh, aspect of, of that case. So LimeWire doesn't have any assets to turn over to, or is not going to have any assets to turn over to Alki David and Filmon and, and all these people here. So, um, you know, is this a little passe to be talking about uh, this, you know, liability occasioned by this mode of infringement? You know, why can't we spend more time thinking about BitTorrent and, you know, whatever's, whatever else is coming down the pike for P2P file distribution and copyright liability? Right. Yeah, and just with the period on this discussion, as you alluded, Evan, uh, that we are now in the damages phase of the LimeWire case and uh, LimeWire's uh, boss, CEO, founder, Mark Gorton is facing damages of up to $1.4 billion uh, if the jury decides to award uh, the maximum available under the Copyright Act. So uh, that's real money. As yes. I'm concerned, <laughs> yes. um, I do want to uh, get into talking about another. Uh, we were talking about government transparency and responding to questions in connection with the ICE story earlier, and I do want to get into the the issue of government transparency around uh, what happened last weekend with Osama bin Laden and going in and taking him out uh, because. I think there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but before we get to that, I want to thank one of our sponsors for the show, and that's Trim Tonic. And I'm actually um, drinking one right now. Here's what it looks like. They're quite good. They sort of have a berry flavor to them. And uh, if you've ever tried Brain Tonic, which has been a favorite around the Twit Network for quite some time, this is from the same people. They're now make, making a product. Everything they make is made out of natural products and herbs. And this one is a natural appetite suppressant that takes the edge off of being hungry. Uh, what makes Trim Tonic unique is that it uses no stimulants to get the effect. There's no caffeine, no hoodia. I don't even know what hoodia is, but it sounds bad and I'm glad it's not in there. Um, instead, they use active ingredients, uh, some of which have clinical studies showing their ability to curb appetite and reduce body fat. And I can attest, I'm drinking one now, I do not feel the need to run to In-N-Out Burger here in the middle of 12. So this is a good thing because generally that starts to kick in about now. Um, it has three main ingredients uh, called, um, and they're really hard to pronounce here, bear with me, Acaranthes aspera and Irvingia gabinensis seed extracts, both of which are tropical plants used in India and Africa for curbing appetites. 
The third is coca leaf extract. And we should just mention that uh, there are about 25 varieties of cocoa and uh, the folks at Trim Tonic um, combine the five most useful varieties. Uh, there, there are no illegal substances involved in the drink <laughs> at all. All the illegal alkalids are removed, leaving others which have appetite-curving effects, just as coffee can be decaffeinated. Coca leaves can be decocainized, so you'll be happy mm. to know that, as I am. Um, and I'm really happy that they are sponsoring the Twit Network. And so um, if you want to give this yummy and appetite-controlling drink a try, uh, go on over to braintonic.com for more information. You can enter the coupon code TWIT for a 20% discount. So thanks so much to Trim Tonic for sponsoring the show. All right, so we all know by this time, and there has been much talk and debate all week about the United States action in Pakistan last Sunday night. It was late Sunday night, my time, and possibly Monday morning, your time in Chicago there, guys. Um, when we all got the news that the U.S. had gone in and uh, and taken out bin Laden finally. And there has been um, a lot of, I think, relief on that front, uh, but also some questions on that front as more and more facts about it have begun to come out. And uh, one of the things that immediately I began thinking about, and I think you did too, Evan, and a lot of people um, who are lawyers, probably this would be one of the first things that would occur to you is, okay, so... We know that we've, you know, declared war on Al Qaeda for some time, and uh, that we're going to characterize this as an act of war. But wouldn't it be nice to have the legal, the actual, you know, laid out in some sort of bullet point manner, legal justification for what went on here? And uh, for a couple of days after this happened, I was scouring the web, and there was very little talk about this at all. Early on, there was a Jeffrey Tubin New Yorker piece that began to touch on it. And now, and I, I've put um, quite a bit in our discussion points for today at delicious.com slash this week in law slash 110 to a variety of discussions on um, the legal underpinnings, uh, most of which cite a 2001 uh, piece of legislation enacted in the United States that allowed uh, the government to go after persons associated with Al Qaeda and do whatever necessary. Um, to pre prevent future violence, et cetera. Um, so there seems to be some sweeping legal justification out there, but we also have you know, human rights organizations chiming in and saying not so fast under the Geneva Convention. Um, there's probably quite a bit to talk about here, but what hasn't, where the talk hasn't been coming from, and this is why I bring it up on the show, is from the White House. Uh, there was a press conference with John Brennan uh, I don't know his exact title. Um, he is one of the higher ups on the national security front with the White House. He did, I think, the day after the event, um, a lengthy press conference. And then I wish I knew the name of the guy who followed him at the press conference. Maybe um, someone in IRC can supply it. I also wish there were a central, and maybe there is, and I just don't know about it, repository where you can go back and review the old press conferences, because I would have liked to do that to give you the guy's name. But someone came up who was a White House representative immediately after John Brennan and was asked the question, what was the legal basis for what transpired? And rather than, you know, against the backdrop of the president saying, you know, we've known about this since August and have been moving slowly to put this in place, 
rather than having whatever legal basis you know that they have on hand ready to go and quickly able to respond to that question, the guy hemmed and hawed and very awkwardly just sort of generally said, well, you know, he's a really bad guy and we had to do what we did and it was necessary for national and global security, et cetera. But, you know, nothing really concrete. Um, so I'm getting around to the fact that we had, we thought a very social media video utilizing, web utilizing administration coming in. And I think they've dropped the ball on this particular issue. When you go to um, the whitehouse.gov site, you go to their issues page, there is a bullet point for um, defense. And the most current thing they have posted there is um, something from the president in 2009 discussing Afghanistan and what we're doing there. So. Um, Evan, I, I toss this to you since we were um, <laughs> IMing about it earlier this week. Right, uh, right. What are your current thoughts? Well, clearly, I mean, I'm completely belaboring the obvious here to point out what a, an extremely difficult issue uh, this is to address. And the fact that merely by bringing up the question of whether or not uh, there was a legal justification or a legal uh, explanation or legal grounds to take Osama bin Laden out. You know, just, just raising that question by implication would be a great heresy in the minds of so many people who would say, uh, you know, by golly, we don't need no stinking legal justification to take the, the, the guy out. So, you know, I think we all have to exhibit some maturity and, and uh, some fundamental uh, open-mindedness and human understanding to even be thinking about all, all of this stuff. So clearly there is, you know, as far as, you know, getting down to that legal analysis, there's a real matrix of, of things going on here that's very interesting to see uh, being played out. You know, we've got an executive order that was first uh, signed by President Ford, and I know that all presidents since then have signed something similar, at least most presidents since then have signed something similar that says, that no uh, government, no U.S. employee will go do a political assassination. Then, of course, we've got the stuff that was enacted after uh, the September 11th attacks on September 18th, a week later, that uh, had a special authorization to take out, uh, you know, the leaders of, of Al-Qaeda. And then, of course, this is all operating within the framework of international law, and we look to uh, things like the Geneva Convention and what we have here in, um, you know, a blog post from humanrightsfirst.org, which is in the show notes for today, that, that gives us this language from uh, Protocol 1 of the Geneva Convention, which is what, uh, you know, I had a general idea or notion of all this of how uh, enemy combatants are to be treated on the battlefield. Um, you know, it, when they're when they're about to surrender. And so this there's this concept of hors de combat, you know, outside of, of combat, you're not supposed to kill someone, even if it's a, a military target on the level of, of Osama bin Laden himself. And so there are three elements here that are spelled out in this when somebody is hors de combat, if he's in the power of an adverse party, which would mean if, you know, if he's been captured, you can't shoot someone, you know, if they're in captivity, he clearly expresses an intention to surrender. So that's, you know, like, I think there's just kind of this international understanding that if someone puts their arms in the air, they're surrendering, I guess, you know, waving a white flag might be the same thing or saying, I surrender, 
you know, clearly expressing that, or if he's been rendered unconscious or otherwise incapacitated, so he's incapable of defending himself. If those, if any of those three things are present, you're not supposed to kill someone. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's that's generally it. So, what we have here is a situation. I'm going back now to say what I said at the beginning. You know, discussing whether Osama, whether it was proper to kill Osama bin Laden in many smart, reasonable people's minds is the same thing as asking, you know, whether the devil should be afforded salvation. Um, you know, it's going to be a very, it is a very fact-intensive analysis. You know, what exactly went on here? And unfortunately, the facts have gotten convoluted because the White House told one story on day one and then changed it a little bit later. You know, the question of whether or not he was armed, whether he was reaching for a rifle, whether or not he used one of his wives as a human shield. So, you know, since it's so factually intense as to whether or not he was hors de combat, um, you know, it's, that it's, it's unfortunate that it's, that it's been muddied a little bit here. So, um, given that, you know, I, I think we, we should, um, you know, try to figure out how much, you know, more brain cycles we actually want to think about this. It was done. It's, 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 it's over with. He's gone. Even Al-Qaeda themselves, uh, you know, admit that he was gone. That's news that's come out today. So that, you know, gives more for the conspiracy theorists or less for the conspiracy theorists. You know, the, the mature thing for us to do now is figure out how much we're going to decide to, to take from this. And, and uh, you know, hopefully things won't get too out of control in the post-mortem legal analysis and all of this. Right. You know, I um, I alluded to your tumble log earlier, Evan, and one of the things you posted early this week is how have you talked to your young children or have you talked to your young children about what happened? And I really appreciated your post on that because um, you had done so very early and proactively and I had not yet. But we finally ultimately um, later in the week had the chat with our seven-year-old. It just sort of came up organically um, flowing from something my husband was reading and uh, talking about. And so we did have the talk and it went much along the lines of how yours went with your child, Evan. Although um, we got to the point where my husband told him that we, you know, we as a country had gone in and gotten this bad guy and he did not go into greater detail. And my son's immediate reaction was, so now there will be a trial. And so then, yeah, now we have to explain what happened. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that really sort of gets to the, the crux of the, the legal analysis and the fact that, you know, I really, really wish that there had been more transparency just on this point and on the justifications that you know that the wonderful law and policy gurus at the White House have been thinking about for a long time, but we just haven't heard from them yet. And it's interesting that in the, the things I linked to um, out on our delicious page for the show, um, you'll see the people writing about this and speculating and saying, well, the White House will say this, but they just haven't gone there yet. Uh, Jackie, what do you think about that? Um, I was going to say, I, I agree that it's a very difficult to navigate, uh, you know, situation. And it is hard to talk about legally because there's so many different elements. But you do have to wonder why the White House hasn't, you know, why have they been so quiet? And you're right. It, undoubtedly, they have somebody there analyzing, analyzing every, you know, every angle of the situation. So you would think that if, if the White House is willing to make an aggressive move like this so quickly and then announce it right away, they should at least, 
you know, offer offer up something for people who who are wondering about the legal basis. And um, I mean, I I can't even begin to speculate as to why they haven't, except except what we already talked about, which is that it's just so it's like an I mean, no pun intended. It's like a minefield of of not just legal discussion, but then you know ethics and. And then political, you know, you're going to have everyone on every side of every political spectrum, you know, chiming in. And it uh, it will be difficult if and when they do finally um, figure out figure out what to say. But I think that they should do so sooner than later uh, just to, you know, the longer they put it off, the, the worse it's going to look. Right. Our IRC is going crazy right now. Among the comments, we've got uh, Sorry Bum saying, we're at war. We owe no explanation Pricey Brick saying politics are for politicians and executives, execs. I don't even know mm-hmm. what an exev is, Pricey Brick. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got Web8996 Web saying transparency doesn't work when it involves national security. Well, certainly I, I would agree with that before the fact, but um, this has all happened now. And, you know, we, we live in a democracy where I think our government is accountable and, uh, I, I would expect this administration even more so to be accountable. Um, and what I would like to see uh, is to have someone, and I'm going to go ahead and drop our uh, resource of the week in here uh, early because it's pertinent to this discussion. Uh, I would love to see someone like Trevor Tim, who we had on the show a few weeks back. He's at New York Law School. He blogs for their Legal As She Is Spoke blog. And he has a wonderful Twitter uh, feed that is our resource of the week called uh, WL Legal, which stands for WikiLeaks Legal. And early on, uh, Trevor was one of the only people that I saw or came across on the web who was digging deep and linking to things, you know, that related to, okay, morally, legally, what sort of footing are we on here? And he was, you know, finding things in the WikiLeaks trove of, for example, an indictment, I think back in the late 90s against bin Laden and tossing that out just to to add to the discussion. Uh, let's see, Chris, we haven't heard from you on this yet. Um, well, it, I think going back um, to the discussion about, you know, the Geneva Convention, um, you know, what we've seen so far suggests that, you know, he wasn't that bin Laden wasn't trying to surrender or anything like that. Um, uh, I think there was some discussion um, in the New Yorker piece, you know, discussing the, the difference between a, um, you know, what what ty- you know, a, a combatant target or a status target, um, and it's it seems pretty clear from the from, you know, what was discussed there is that, you know, he was clearly identified by the U.S. as you know. Uh, um, you know, someone who, who could potentially and, and probably has uh, caused a serious harm. Um, so from that point of view, you know, just I mean, just looking at what what the discussion is so far, it, it, it seems like it was definitely thought about and, and at least legally justified internally. And, and um, I, I, I almost kind of wonder myself if the White House wasn't at least caught off guard a little bit when somebody said, well, wait a minute, was that legal? I mean, I, I, I think maybe they were sort of expecting that everyone would just think it was so great they wouldn't care. Um, and and so from that perspective, it doesn't surprise me they didn't come out right away and say it, but I, I agree that um, 
you know, there probably should be some clear and, and official statement, you know, here's what we did. Here's why we did it. This is why we believe it's legal in the story. Right. Getting, getting back to Trevor Tim and our resource of the week, his, his WikiLeaks uh, Twitter feed, what he was doing after all this happened was, you know, aggregating everything that was coming out that had legal analysis. And most of the things I've looked at were things that he called. Um, and also, you know, substantively giving his own opinions. Wouldn't it be nice if we had something like that coming out of the White House saying, you know, here's some discussion and here also is, you know, our official standpoint on all of this. Um, I'm, I'm maybe being a little idealistic to think that that could happen, but, you know, at least the official part uh, could be part of the mix, I would hope. Um, Evan, any final thoughts on this? Um, well, no. I mean, just I get nothing substantive. Just one thing to add, and that is perhaps the Obama administration's position in, in this is that, you know, you, the American people, should trust that the attorney general and the Department of Justice reviewed all of this, um, you know, vetted it, grokked it, did everything in advance. And it sounds like, you know, they were prepared for both contingencies, taking bin Laden captive or killing him on the spot. And so perhaps their, their reasonable and appropriate position to be taking on this is that trust us. We, we did the analysis. Um, you know, there should be nothing uh, further to say unless, you know, there's some other way of, of getting to, you know, getting answers on, on what it is. And I don't know the avenue uh, for what that would be. You know, this is not like a FOIA kind of thing, a Freedom of Information Act kind of thing. You can't petition the government to say, give us the memos that, you know, deal with this issue of national security. So, I guess, you know, we, sh you know, what, what sounds like you're asking for is for the Obama administration to uh, have a sensibility here to provide this information on its own volition, uh, which would be a very enlightened and progressive view, something we certainly would not have seen ex or would have expected to see from uh, the, the Bush administration or, or any other administration that I know of prior, prior to that. But right. somebody in IRC did say that, you know, of course, FDR did a great job explaining why we had to go to war after Pearl Harbor. Uh, but I think there are some, some clear differences uh, between the situation and that. Um, Truman didn't necessarily go into a bunch of analysis uh, post hoc, I don't believe, I wasn't there, uh, after we dropped the bombs on, uh, on Japan. So it's just, there's, there's just no simple, there are no simple answers to these questions. No, but although uh, Virgil and IRC um, brought up another point that my son <laughs> asserted, he says, forget the legal part. What about asking him questions about the rest of his group network, et cetera? And that's, you know, my son was like, well, if he were still around, we could ask him questions uh, from the, the mouths of seven-year-olds. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. And then Loquacious says, I just love that technology played a part in finding him. Um, someone explained that one to me because uh, it seemed fairly low tech. So I'm sure there is a tech angle here somewhere they they tracked down a courier but what what then what was the oh, technical I thought it was I him? thought it I thought it was we had gotten his uh, email address from the the Sony uh breach security breach that I thought those <laughs> there you go oh no Osama clearly had an iPhone and Steve Jobs is yes. tracking. oh that's it we knew right where we were all right. Well, um, I do want to get into talking about um, some more of those things. Uh, but one of the questions we just got from IRC or remarks is um, 
from Brian G. He says, I don't agree with you, given the spring of freedom in the Middle East, if the politicos can make this population-driven uprising of democracy, uh, the USA's world presence may hit its highest level ever. And if the general folks no longer provide safe haven for terrorists, then they are done. Um, just speaking of the uh, what's going on in the Middle East, uh, and a great documentary on that point. I thought that would be a great way to thank our second sponsor for the show, which is Netflix. And uh, there is a wonderful uh, documentary over there that's worth checking out. There's so many great documentaries that you can watch on Netflix. And with their instant streaming service, it just makes it all the easier to do. Uh, the one I wanted to call out and feature on, you know, since we are discussing this, is uh, Frontline Revolution in Cairo. Uh, it was made this year. Uh, it is uh, by Charles Sennett. And uh, it dispatches teams to Cairo going inside the youth movement that helped light the fire on the streets. Uh, it follows the April 6th group, which two years ago began making a bold use of the internet for their underground resistance tactics that led to jail and torture for many of their leaders. Now, starting with the Day of Rage, we witness those same leaders' plot strategy to bring down President Mubarak. So um, topical and they're available on Netflix which of course delivers movies directly to your home and that saves you time, money and hassle. You can instantly watch this documentary and thousands of TV episodes, other documentaries, movies, etc., streamed directly to your PC or Mac or streamed to your TV via a Netflix ready device, including Xbox 360, PS3 or Nintendo Wii, or of course the Roku. Uh, plus, you get DV DVDs by mail in about one business day. And uh, you know, I've mentioned my son a couple times on the show. I'll tell you my Netflix strategy at the moment. And that is I use the DVD service solely for the kid stuff um, because they've got such a huge uh, back catalog of great kid things um, that you, know, you, you don't necessarily want to watch. But they've got all the great Disney and wonderful episodes of um, their favorite old shows. Um, that it's perfectly fine to just have the DVDs delivered to your house. You have a constant stream of them coming in and whenever you need to have a bit of uh, child-friendly entertainment, it's always there at hand. And then I tend to use the uh, Watch Instantly service uh, for myself and my husband since we tend to be um, someone who wants to browse and watch immediately uh, more so than we need to with the sun. So you can watch as many movies as you want, anytime you want. There are never any late fees or due dates. And uh, so please do check out the Frontline documentary, Revolution in Cairo, or any of the other thousands of selections available on Netflix. When you register, you can get a free trial membership to do all this. If you're not already a member, go to netflix.com slash twit. And we thank Netflix for their support of This Week in Law. All right, uh, Evan, you alluded to the PS3, PSN, PlayStation Network, I guess we're calling it. Uh, they're calling it breach and uh, security leak. Let's talk about that a bit. Uh, we haven't done that on the show. So um, there is a great uh, FAQ I did put in our discussion points, everything you would like to know about the PlayStation Network breach uh, from Erica Og over at <laughs> LimeWire lawsuit defendant CNET. Um, so uh, what do you think about all this, Evan? Is this just a, an example of um, how our data just, there's no safety for it whatsoever and 
and we just have to be ready for it to get out there? Or what do we take away from this? Well, that's one thing we can take away from it, realizing the extent and the magnitude of the risk with 77 million users being affected here. That is no small portion of the Earth's population to have, you know, personally identifiable information turned over to the, the hands of, of hackers here. So, you know, like so many other things we talk about, this doesn't lend itself to easy solution either. The What we have from Congress is, of course, um, among, you know, certain members of the uh, of the the legislature saying we need laws now to to strengthen this um is it was it sunny bono's widow is that who that is i think she's from out there in california saying she wants to introduce some some legislation um mm -hmm. you know about about this toughening it up mary bono mac is that i didn't yes. i didn't look her up on wikipedia before that but i thought she was yes uh, she took his congressional seat when he yes, that's what I what I thought. So, um, you know, calling hearings, doing all this stuff. I'm reminded of of some a concept that James Grimmelman is good at articulating the idea of you know these vast pools of information being thought of under the law in the same way that uh, inherently dangerous things are thought of in you know strict liability analysis. For example, products liability or you know landowners having you know large bodies of water held back by a dam. You know, what is the responsibility if that dam is to break and damage, you know, the, the surrounding property here? And, and, you know, there is this call, at least an implicit kind of call for, you know, treating that in a special way because of this enormous risk that is, uh, you know, put on um, or that is that is brought about because of the concentration of this information. And so, um, you know, that one way to approach it is to strengthen the requirements on those who are uh, holding these data. But I really think that there should be enough market forces already to uh, to make sure that they're they're doing everything they can to to not have this happen already. I mean, this has to have pretty much. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I haven't seen any numbers, but this has to have substantially affected Sony's business from all this. And it's not just the immediate harm, but it's the loss of goodwill and trust that the consuming public is going to have. That is a huge market incentive to make sure that companies are keeping their data as secure as reasonably possible. We know that there is no such thing as perfect security. So the law probably is just going to be a paltry uh, effort, a paltry effect on, on an increasing security. It's got to be something, um, you know, much more than just the, the law operating on all of this stuff. Well, you would think if anyone were well familiar with that issue, it would be Sony. I don't know if anybody remembers the whole rootkit debacle, but sure. that sure. certainly uh, yeah. was no real walk in the park for them either from the PR standpoint. What do you think of this, Jackie? Um, so I, I agree with Evan in that there is a certain level where you, at this point, you know, oh, sorry about that. Uh, at this point, we do have to accept there is a certain level of risk in putting our information on any kind of service. However, with Sony, um, I mean, they did, uh, I don't know, Gene Spafford uh, is a security expert and he, he works at Purdue at, the, at Sirius and um, he testified to Congress about the Sony breach this week. And he <laughs> pointed out that, uh, Sony was running old versions of Apache and wasn't didn't have any firewalls and all these things were even exposed to Sony months ago and they didn't do anything about it. So there is a you know okay yes we do have to accept that our information is online and accessible to a certain degree, um, but the companies do have to take a responsibility to make some effort to 
you know, keep things patched, make sure things are at least reasonably secure. And, um, and it, it certainly feels like they did not do that in this case, or at least were kind of ignoring it, hoping it would go away. Uh, so there's, there's that element, of course. And then um, our, our gaming editor, Ben Kuchero, who covered this uh, on our site, he, he was big on you know, hammering Sony for not being transparent uh, from the beginning. But I think in that sense, I mean, they, they did come out and talk about it a little bit you know, within days. So I'm, I don't find that to be a huge deal, but um, some, some people were very upset about Sony not telling them what had been exposed until a few days later. Chris, do you think that there are any threads we can tie together between this and Apple's location tracking? And, you know, I mean, are we just, uh, do we need to get used to living in a society where we, our expectations of privacy are lowered or, or is there another solution? Well, uh, I think that what we have to do is accept that there's going to be a compromise between, um, you know, if we're going to take advantage of services that use our personal information, like location, that we need, you know, we need to understand there's a compromise between our strict level of privacy and the benefit that we gain. Um, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, Apple made kind of an important point, and I think that that I think some people kind of missed the importance of it that that Apple and industry as a whole hasn't been very good about educating users, and I think that's that's kind of the problem is that, you know, we, um, as a society, I think that we've come, become pretty com dependent uh, to a certain degree on the internet. And we're so used to going to amazon.com and entering our credit card. And we're so used to going to, um, you know, Netflix and entering our information there and just these different services. We're so, um, enamored by the benefits that we get that we don't stop to think about, you know, are there downsides? Should we think about them? Is, you know, does it matter to me if my iPhone has a list of the places I've been in the last year? You know, um, it, it, it's certainly, I, I definitely agree that, that, you know, Apple or Google or anyone doesn't really, shouldn't be tracking any individual person automatically. Um, but as, as a lot of people pointed out, cell phone companies have this information available and they can turn it over to law enforcement if it's if it's subpoenaed. Um, so it, 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 I, I think it 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 behooves us as a society to kind of come to grips with the fact that, you know, if we want to take advantage of services, you know, we want to take advantage of the benefits these services have that use our location or other kinds of information that we need to be prepared for the fact that someone else could find out this information. Well, we talked last week on the show with Neelai Patel about something he calls taco suits, which are uh, a sort of opportunistic lawsuits based on the fact that, you know, it sounds there's a lot of saber rattling and public opinion around an issue. And mm -hmm. so let's, mm -hmm. you know, throw a lawsuit at the wall and see what sticks. Somebody uh, did throw a lawsuit at Google, a $50 million one that you wrote up, Chris, on Ars Technica. Do you think that this is merely a taco suit or is, you know, this the kind of thing that we should as a society expect to, companies to respond to and pay damages for um, in a justified way in litigation? And is that how this should all get policed? Um, I, I think there's, 
some issues involved. I, I'm not 100% sure. I, I mean, there are at least two lawsuits I've heard of against Apple as well for the same issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that that there's a couple fundamental differences um, between what the iPhone is doing and what Android phones are doing that conceivably could put Google in into some more liability. You know, like I I'm couldn't say that for sure, obviously, and, and it definitely needs to be looked at. But one of the issues that the lawsuit claimed is that the information that Google sends from Android phones back to Google, um, you know, it's it's aggregating this location data uh, and they're using it for um, traffic information to improve um, Google Maps, all kinds of different things they're using it for. Um, but one of the things the lawsuit claimed is that it's sent from an Android phone to Google and it's not encrypted. So it is basically potential that, um, someone else could somehow intercept it and, and use it in some nefarious way. Um, you know, I think one of the plaintiffs complained that they could be stalked with the information. Um, the, the other issue is that um, or at least what Apple is saying they're doing with the information is they're collecting information about locations of cell towers and Wi-Fi access points um, to improve their database that's used to kind of enhance GPS location information. Um, and that this, you know, it's it's encrypted, it's anonymized, it's sent to Apple and just, you know, called into this database and it's strictly um, um, cell phone locations and Wi-Fi access points, not actual iPhone locations. Um, on the other hand, uh, uh, Google says that it's it's sending uh, that Android is sending information every couple of minutes, um, and and it seems to imply that it's actual, you know, where the actual phone is. Um, uh, I have heard that that you know Google takes steps to anonymize that information as well, um, but I do know that they also attach a. Um, an identification number that's unique to each Android phone. It, it's it's not any way directly traceable to a user, but it, you know it it seems possible if the information gets into the wrong hands that someone could do something with it that's not good. Um, it seems like a pretty remote possibility. Um, so you know my personal opinion is it, you know whether Google has any direct liability. You know, it's hard to say. It seems possible, but unlikely. I mean, I think Evan might have um, a more clear opinion on that. Do you, Evan? I would say the same things I said last week about the suits against uh, Apple, you know, over all this stuff. I think that there's maybe there's a consumer uh, protection kind of angle to this where people were misled. I'm skeptical of that because I think that the the privacy policy, you know, for on the Android platform, even if you got to click a couple buttons or click, you know, a couple times in settings to get to it, you know, it's still there. It still, um, I think, says what Google purports that it says. I don't think there's any real trickery going on here. Where I really find a lot of fault is with the claims under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And I won't hash out, you know, all the things that I did to, you know, express my um, doubts about the, the, you know, how good those claims are again this week, like I did last week. Hmm. Um, but um, I just don't think that there's going to be a cognizable loss or damage so far, um, you know, given all this stuff. It's just this threat of being stalked, this threat of being tracked. Uh, the law 
seems to be shaking out on the side, at least at this point in time, that just the 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 fear that your privacy has been compromised is not enough to uh, support a lawsuit for a number of, of causes of action. So I think the same the same weaknesses are here in this litigation, despite the um, and, and analogs, you know, the the and um, the. In as much as the, the 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 cases are factually similar at a certain level, or actually they're different. I meant to say to these, even though they're a little bit different, <laughs> they're similar and they're different. Uh, they they share the same weaknesses from the uh, legal standpoint. There, that's what I meant to say. Got it. So, um, Jackie, <laughs> Apple has now updated the iOS to address this. Is that right? Uh, yes, for the most part. Um, the the update they released this week. Uh, you know, does all the same things that Apple promised that they would when they responded to the whole thing last week, which is, um, you know, reduce the size of the cache. I think that the point of that is to ha contain less data. Uh, you know, before the update, it was keeping up to a year's worth of data for people. So um, that has been reduced. It's not being backed up to the computer anymore. So people who might have access to your computer, uh, you know, can't access it. And, um, I forget if there were other elements, but those are the main ones. And um, and I think most people, not everyone is satisfied with this, but most people are. Uh, the people who are not satisfied are the people who jailbreak their phones, um, you know, and, and muck around in all the files there. Uh, obviously, you can still access the file uh, on the phone. Um, oh, yeah, now I remember. The third thing was that... Uh, that it deletes itself completely when you turn off location services, which was not the case before. So, uh, you know, when people ask me about this, I uh, I just tell them if if they're truly concerned about the location, then turn off location services. But, you know, I, I think as Chris mentioned when he was talking about Google, or, you know, there's a certain level at which you're going to have to accept if you're going to use location services, you're going to use location-based things, that you are going to have... You're probably going to have some sort of trail somewhere, you know, deep within your phone on a file somewhere. There's going to be a trail. Um, so there is a certain level of acceptance that you just have to come to with that kind of thing. Right. Well, Loquacious did clarify earlier when we were talking about the technolo technology involved in locating Bin Laden that uh, it was, you guys weren't kidding, it was a cell phone, <laughs> a known operative. <laughs> Uh, the crew used a cell phone and a known operative since Khalid Sheikh Mohammed named names. I'm not sure um, what exactly that means, but apparently a cell phone uh, was involved in tracking them down. So, you know, I guess something to consider if you're involved in uh, international bad deeds of any type. Um, all right, uh, Jackie, I wanted to get into a couple of things that have been on your recent writing beat lately, including um, so long TiVo has been facing uh, patent charges uh, relating to Dish Network and Echo Star, and that has finally settled. Do you want to bring us up to speed there? Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess to make a long story short, um, TiVo had gone after... Echo Star and Dish Network, uh, you know, back in 2004, uh, for for basically copying its, you know, the time shifting whole time shifting element of the TiVo. You know, back in 2004, people weren't really into DVRs like they are today. So, 
uh, recording live TV onto something like a hard drive and not a VHS tape, and then time shifting it and possibly skipping over commercials and that kind of thing was really new. So, uh, so TiVo sued, um, and it sort of went back and forth for years uh, over over the validity of the patent and you know, like basically everything that anyone could think of to try and get this thing thrown out. And um, TiVo, I mean, at, at every point, TiVo has been appealing and, or Dish has been appealing, and TiVo keeps coming out ahead. So um, most m most recently, up until this week, um, I believe Dish and Echostar were, a judge ruled against them, um, saying they had to disable their, you know, disable their offerings and shell out $90 million to TiVo. And then, um, you know, a week later, the the companies came to a settlement wherein they get to, Dish and Echostar get to continue offering their services, their TiVo-like services. Um, and TiVo has access to some of Echostar's patents. And um, Dish and Echostar are paying TiVo $500 million. That's basically the long and short of it. Yes, all, all I really know about the case is that it seems like it's been around forever. So, um, yes. I guess for for all the players involved, that's probably it's probably just been time for them to put it to bed. But it is yes, interesting to just consider the whole. Like you were uh, saying, Jackie, that you know the DVR landscape has changed so much in in the course of this case running through. I do think. Um, I mean, I. I would like to just see it go away forever <laughs> at this point, mm -hmm. but um, I do think that there are still questions. I mean, it has been settled, so it probably will go away, but there are questions over whether TiVo really should. I mean, I think there's always going to be people who are going to ask whether this patent is valid. Um, it is It is kind of broad, but, uh, you know, Dish and, Dish and Echostar have, have lost and lost and lost again, you know, over the last seven years of, of litigation. So um, at, at this point, it's people practically moving on from DVRs anyway. People are kind of getting into streaming and and all that stuff. And so it's almost it's almost not as relevant as it was even um, like the lawsuit itself a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, it's going away, so it's probably time. <laughs> yeah, one other thing, one other thing that uh, you've written about recently, and I chatted with you, thanks to Evan, who put us together, is the uh, Amazon Cloud Player and Cloud Drive. And yeah. uh, that has sort of been winding its way along. Um, recently, you've written that Apple is supposedly ahead of Google with its digital music locker plans. So why don't you uh, bring us up to speed on m the music locker drama as it unfolds? Yes. Um, well, as you know, uh, Amazon rolled out its own cloud player and cloud drive um, last month. And immediately the record labels were, they were mostly scared and confused. I think they just weren't prepared for this to happen. And they thought Amazon was going to get new licenses from them to stream music, and then Amazon did not. Uh, and then the question was at that time whether Amazon has the right to do this without getting new licenses. And um, part of the discussion that, that we had was whether, I guess, whether services like, uh, well, companies like Apple and Google would hold off on their own services to see whether 
Amazon would, you know, continue to move forward forward with this, or if there would be lawsuits involved. And um, so far, there have not been lawsuits. Amazon has been rumored to be in talks with the music labels over licensing issues, but so far, at least publicly, uh, it doesn't seem like that has gotten anywhere. Uh, meanwhile, Apple is also rumored to be working on its own digital locker service, which would be very similar to what Amazon already rolled out. So uh, the rumors, at least, say that Amazon, or uh, I'm sorry, Apple, is working on revamping MobileMe and allowing users to upload their music that they've already purchased from iTunes, and then from there they can, you know, stream it to their iOS device, their iPhone, or their iPad, and. Um, I mean, that's basically what Amazon is doing with cloud player, except it would be for Apple. And uh, the rumor is that Apple is working on rolling this out this summer. But, you know, like I mentioned in my write-up, I think Amazon, the whole thing with Amazon is holding up Apple to some degree, maybe, uh, because, because there are licensing questions. Why would Apple get new licenses to stream the music if Amazon's not? Um, it's... I think, I think we're going to have to find out, I, probably by accident. I mean, no one's going to make an announcement about this. Probably Apple or Amazon or somebody is going to just go ahead and move forward. And then you know, there will be a rash of anonymous music executives telling people in the press that, <laughs> that Apple, got, Apple got licenses and Amazon didn't or something. You know, uh, I think it will come to a head very soon because Apple has been rumored to be working on its service for like a year. So... Um, and then I don't know what's going on with Google. Google's uh, music service, they've talked about it a little bit here and there, um, think too solid. And it, for a while, was also expected to be a digital locker type service. But now now the latest you know, buzz seems to think that they're moving away from that and they're moving more towards a traditional subscription type thing. So uh, Google might be kind of backing out of this that whole mess. Right. Uh, one person who always seems to come up in the discussion of music locker service, and rightly so, is Michael Robertson, who's now the CEO of MP3 Tunes and was the founder long ago of MP3.com. Uh, over on uh, the Twit Network elsewhere, uh, episode 12 of Triangulation features him and has a great discussion with him. So um, it's worthwhile to go check that out. Uh, I was listening before the show started today and he had this great comment. Don't assume copyright lawsuits are about right and wrong. Uh, because yeah. in his in his suit, that uh, doesn't appear to have been the case as he was pointing out the irony of being sued into non-existence and then being bought by the company that did that to him. So... Um, it's uh, an interesting discussion all around. And Chris, you uh, you had a comment uh, on the TiVo litigation, the patent litigation in IRC. Uh, do you want to go ahead and share that with us? Uh, yeah, I was just it was kind of following on something that Jackie was mentioning. But um, you know, like like she said, that basically this this lawsuit has gone on for seven years, and you know it's come to a conclusion, uh, a settlement. Um, but, but like she said, basically in that seven years, a, a large part of the market has just moved on and, and kind of, it's sort of like no one kind of really cares anymore because, um, you know, streaming is starting to, uh, become more important than being able to TiVo stuff from cable or, or satellites or whatever. So, 
um, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case for everyone, but still, um, I think that that could be, a, a, it, it seems like sort of a kind of a fundamental problem with the way the, the court system works and the, the amount of time that it takes for these types of lawsuits to move that they just happen at, at a glacial pace compared to the pace of, you know, technology and, and, and how it changes. Yeah, to say the least, <laughs> it's um, it's a rare thing. I think you know, look at the um, the the litigation against YouTube and Google by Viacom, um, right. and how much had changed for them uh, before they actually got a resolution. And it was an early resolution in that case because it was summary judgment. But still, um, so much had changed in the YouTube service between uh, when that happened and when the initial complaint was filed that it seemed like most of what they were complaining about was no longer a real issue. Um, there are a couple of threads uh, that we've talked about today on the show that I'd like to just uh, bring out some follow-ups from IRC, um, just getting back to you know the question of whether the White House is dropping the ball on, on not you know addressing the issues of legality head on. Um, Web 458 in IRC pointed out that Judge Napolitano has said that the United States broke four international treaties in its actions. So, you know, again, if you have jurists opining that there are things amiss, then you would think that there might be an occasion to comment. Um, Eric Deckman is clarifying on the phone that led to um, them finding the location. It was a satellite phone. So uh, maybe our cell phone services are are, uh, are not the only issue. <laughs> um, and he also pointed to a good timeline of how they learned of the courier who unknowingly led them to the Bin Laden compound. And that's over at uh, the BBC's site. Um, so we'll uh, I'll throw that one into the discussion points for the show as well. If anyone wants to check it out, it's kind of a long URL. Uh, also over on our Facebook page, we had a couple of comments from people who are uh, loyal watchers of the show and frequent commenters there. Jason Watkins um, in responding to whether the White House has um, acted appropriately in its communications here, been transparent enough or, or vocal enough on this front. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I've totally uh, jumped to a different thread there. Um, uh, no, he commented on something else. He commented on uh, the Grokster case um, and uh, the CNET being sued um, over its LimeWire downloads. Um, so uh, he thinks it's slippery as to whether or not uh, CNET has liability. So that's sort of up in the air, but thinks it's helpful that they left the choice up to the user. And Andrew Thompson thinks this is a really silly lawsuit and so was the Grokster one. So thanks you guys for chiming in there. Sorry, I had you under or th was thinking of you under the wrong thread. Um, I wanna jump to our tip of the week, uh, which came to me uh, via Evan. Um, and uh, Evan, you had posted about how, an interesting t statistic about use of Facebook in divorce cases. So our tip flowing from this is uh, if you are, you know, having marital problems, maybe it's time to shutter your Facebook case, uh, uh, Facebook page, and and go through the uh, actual deletion process. There, you want to explain why, Evan? 
Well, yes. I mean, the, what, um, what, what's in our show notes here is a, a uh, link. It's a story from um, Tampa Bay, the local, uh, one of the local affiliates down there, uh, the networks. It's a, an interview with the St. Petersburg attorney. And, you know, she says in her practice that up to 90% of her divorce cases somehow involve Facebook. You know, it's a very rich source of, of evidence uh, in large part from the lack of discretion that people use when they're deciding what content to, to put online, something that uh, can be taken as, uh, you know, adverse to one's divorce proceedings if you're with your um, mistress or, or whatever, and then it ends up there. If you're, the, the example that she gives in the interview, the lawyer gives was um, uh, pictures of the uh, guy at a nightclub with the, the babysitter. So, you know, those types of things find their way on Facebook, sometimes out of the control of the uh, person whose identity is really at stake here. If you've got, you know, 400 friends, uh, this is a point that's made in the article, if you've got 400 friends, you know, there's bound to be a few of those who aren't concerned about the privacy settings as you are. So um, this seems like a real natural phenomenon. Uh, you know, so much information about ourselves ends up in social media. Uh, so it's, it's natural that uh, attorneys who need to uh, take a position on something that is in opposition to another party's interests will look at information or at sources of information like this and, and use it accordingly. So uh, it may take more than just shutting your own Facebook account. It may mean um, having a certain sense of, of discretion in the first place and allowing uh, this information about you to arise into reality. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the solution for it all. Yeah, huge, huge boon to the marital law bar there. So um, <laughs> do bear that in mind, uh, should that be an issue in your life. And uh, Jackie, I'd, I'd like to um, just go to you and see if you have anything that we didn't get around to discussing today that you were dying to talk about, or are you pretty much ready for us to uh, call it a show? Oh, uh, oh God, I don't know. I, I was going to actually just toss an extra comment on top of Evans about the Facebook stuff. Sure. Um, I've, this is something that I have thought about a lot because I think that people do, people have really have no idea um, who is watching their Facebook, their Facebook pages at any time. But, but there is a certain element to, um, I've written about it in the past about how uh, when you delete pictures from Facebook, the pictures stay on the server for a very long time. Um, I was following one photo that I deleted. Uh, I deleted from Facebook. Like at this point, it must be like two years ago. Um, but if you have a direct link to like the JPEG, um, you can basically view it forever. And um, I wrote about this, and our a bunch of readers started writing to me, telling me that their various pictures that they deleted of their naked children and you know whatever have remained on the server forever. So this is another thing to consider if you are going to be you know, if you're going to be doing posting anything or if even if your friends are going to be posting things on Facebook that maybe you don't want everyone to see, I mean, you you really have to be careful because once it goes there, even if you delete it, um, you know, someone who has a direct link to the picture will probably always, always have it and they will know that it is on Facebook. So um, it's just one of the many, many things you have to consider before before putting anything online. And and if you think your friends are going to out you for, you know, marital relate, you know, marital relation type things, um, I mean, talk to your friends. Have have somebody understand your point of view here that you want a certain level of privacy. 
That's all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How about you, Chris? Any last thoughts or any other issues we didn't get to that you wish we had? Uh, no, I, I just think kind of flowing from a, a kind of a common thread in some of these issues and, and flowing from the whole Facebook issue is that, again, it's, 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 it, um, like Jackie was mentioning, if you don't want to be, you know, if you don't want Apple, quote unquote, tracking your location, turn off location services. But, you know, uh, even if, even without that, that um, cache of information that's on your iPhone, you know, people use Foursquare, people use Twitter. Now Facebook has its own, like, check-in system. Yelp has a check-in system. All these services, uh, you know, are, are, are putting your location out there, too. Um, and, you know, it, it's not like your phone is the only place where this information is. It's not like Facebook is the only um, place where some of this information is. And it's, it's, it's just like Jackie was saying, it's like, if, if you're going to put anything online, you know, be prepared for whatever consequences could happen if someone else in the world sees it, you know, um, you know, uh, if you're going to put pictures on Flickr and they're probably accessible, someone else in the world's going to see it. If you don't want, you know, if there's one person in the world you don't want to see that picture, make it private or just don't put it on there at all. Yeah, in my case, yeah, that's usually my husband who's just appalled that I put anything <laughs> online. So you can imagine that, you know, I'm a fairly public person. I do this show. I have a Twitter account, a blog, blah, blah, blah. That, that whenever he stumbles across something on my Flickr account, he just goes nuts. <laughs> but, you know, I do, I do try and exercise the kind of discretion that uh, Evan mentioned. And it, it seems like... Um, you know, that this is something that we have to start thinking about early on to inculcate in people. Evan, do you, uh, do you talk with your young kids about this? Well, not so much yet because their use of the computer is limited to just very refined domains. And I don't think they've gotten the idea. They don't even understand the concept that you can actually provide information yet. My, old, my oldest son is five, you know, so they're still just on pbskids.org and, and right. stuff like that. But, you know, what I'm pleased to see is that they do feel comfortable with the technology, which leads me to conclude or to, to believe or at least hope, I guess is best the, the best that I can say, is that if they have an understanding of, of how it works and what, you know, what is the uh, role of the intermediary and, and, and the, 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 the large general concept that your information goes somewhere else, the more of the, the richer of an understanding they have of that, I'm hopeful that they will be more uh, aware of the sensibilities and the soundness of, of all of the, uh, of, um, you know, of, of what's going on, of, of, of why they should be, be cautious about these things. So that's the extent of it, of it now. All right. Well, with that, I'm uh, ready to call it a show and start the weekend. I hope you guys are too. But it has been a pleasure having you on today. We had really fun discussion on a lot of different points, wide ranging. Jackie Chang, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. And of course, uh, when she's not busy chatting with us here on Twill, do head over to Ars Technica, where Jackie is writing and writing and writing away. You're very prolific and very insightful, Jackie. So we really appreciate your work over there and look forward to uh, more of it. Thank you very much. And uh, where can folks also uh, follow you on Twitter? Oh, um, they can follow me on Twitter at ejackie, and it is spelled E-J-A-C-Q-U-I. Anything else uh, you want to plug? Any uh, tumble logs we should know about or uh, other web um, locations? God, I don't know. 
I don't have enough time in my life anymore to. <laughs> You're to writing all the time. Multiple blogs. Yeah, I know. I'm always writing on ours. So I guess, I guess, follow me on ours and Twitter and um, and yeah, Twitter is mostly the place to find out anything new that's going on in my life. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time today. We really enjoyed chatting with you and with Chris Forsman, also from Ars Technica. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you, Denise. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We really appreciate your being here and taking time out from your great writing and other endeavors. So um, your Twitter handle is uh, ForsMac, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right, so find and Chris over I'm easily, there. I guess I'm easily Googleable, if that's a word. <laughs> easily Googleable. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. And Evan, thank you for another great show. Yes, lots of fun. Yeah, thanks for having, uh, you know, the Chicago crew on. That's been the best best part about this. So, uh, I know. The, what do we call you? The Chicago gang, Chicago mafia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think that's my, I think that's mainly <laughs> that's, Chris. Look at him, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that Firefox extension, right? Chicago mafia with an extra A. <laughs> right. It should be. <laughs> So, so yeah, this was a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, as uh, usual, for uh, letting me hang out with you on uh, Friday afternoons. It's a great time. Really fun on my end as well. And uh, we will see you next week at 11 o'clock Pacific time, 1 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv if you want to join us while we record live. Or if you're not so inclined, hopefully you are having no trouble locating the show on iTunes or Roku or any of the other Mediafly distribution outlets where you can find our fine Twit offerings. We're so thrilled that you've joined us and we'll see you again next week. Email me at, de at denise at twit.tv. You have any comments, thoughts, or suggestions. And uh, we'll see you next time on episode 111.